does it mean to live in a country that tells women your body isn't yours? A country that tells women that we don't have the basic sovereign right to what happens within our own bodies. When the state takes that away from women, it makes all of us second-class citizens where the moment a woman gets pregnant or a person gets pregnant, they no longer have the same rights and freedoms as every other citizen in the country. And that affects everyone. It makes for a worse, darker, less equal society. Figure out how you can join this fight. episode 118 of the Reviews Fascism podcast, a podcast brought to you by volunteers with Reviews Fascism. I'm Sam Goldman, one of those volunteers and host of the show. Reviews Fascism exposes, analyzes, and stands against the very real danger and threat of fascism coming to power in the United States. We appreciate that you value what we have to say. We read all your reviews, emails, comments, tweets, and we hope that after listening to this episode, you'll share your thoughts with us. We want to give a shout out to Eco Watchdog, that's dog, D-A-W-G, on Twitter, who tweeted in response to our last episode, do not let WRT, white replacement theory, become normalized. Refuse fascism in the name of humanity. Hashtag anti-racist. Be like Eco Watchdog. Spread the show and review it. In today's episode, we're sharing two conversations. One I had with Jill Filopovich, writer, lawyer, and author. And a conversation between Sansara Taylor, co-host of the RNL Revolution Nothing Less show, with Dahlia Lithwick, writer for Slate and host of the Amicus podcast. Both of these help us deepen our understanding of what truly is at stake with the potential overturning of Roe, how it connects to the broader fascist assault, and why what we do and do not do in this moment really fucking matters. It's important to pay attention to the terror that the LGBTQ plus community faces during what should be a joyous month of pride celebrations in just one weekend. Idaho police found 31 members of white supremacist Patriot Front packed in the back of a U-Haul truck en route to disrupt and attack an LGBTQ plus pride event. California Proud Boys disrupted a drag queen event terrorizing parents and children, screaming anti-trans and anti-gay insults. Texas, fascist thugs threatened attendees and an adults-only drag brunch. As reported on by Adam Gavitt for The Guardian, quote, it was a concentration of anti-LGBTQ plus hate in America that came as a shock to some, but not to the advocates and groups who have been warning of an alarming rise in anti-trans and gay speech over the past year, especially from the far right. It's an increase, they warn, that has been spurred by Republican politicians and right-wing media who have pushed anti-LGBTQ plus talking points and legislation that has seen the rights and safety of an already marginalized group threatened, end quote. We'll be covering this more in future episodes 
and a link to the full article is in the show notes. I'm excited to share these two interviews, but first, we need to talk briefly about the January 6th Select Committee hearings and Trump's remarks at the Faith and Freedom Conference. I'll be honest, I'm not going to be that brief. If somehow you had lived through Trump's four years of presidency, his year prior of campaigning, his repeated promises to not accept anything short of a win, his refusal to concede the election, his actions before, during, and after the insurrection, and still somehow questioned his and his party's commitment to fascism, well, watching the hearings clears it all up. These hearings are unprecedented because what was so narrowly escaped was unprecedented. We got to repeat this because in many ways we have seen to normalize and move past what happened just a year and a half ago. Donald Trump, in coordination with white supremacist mobs, Supreme Court justices, and 147 congressmen tried to overturn the election. For this, nobody has seriously been held to account. In case you missed it, I want to share what I feel are some crucial highlights, but I encourage everyone who cares about the threat of American fascism to watch it for themselves. So what did the hearing show? That Trump and John Eastman, Trump's top lawyer at the time, knew their plan to force the then vice president, Mike Pence, to reject the election results on January 6th was unconstitutional. They showed that once Pence told them that this was the line he would not cross, the coup plotters, led by Trump, mobilized their violent mob to turn on him. That this violent mob, which included Proud Boys, that an informant confirmed was committed to killing Pence, Pelosi, and others if they could, got within 40 feet of the vice president. Remember that after this deadly mob stormed the Capitol, 147 Republicans voted pro-fascist coup, choosing not to certify the election. As Jason Stanley aptly noted on Twitter, quote, the January 6th committee showed that everyone in D.C., including all those close to Trump, knew that Biden won the election. So, all those GOP senators and Congress people who voted not to certify the election knew they were attempting to overthrow U.S. democracy. This is about them, too. End quote. We heard from retired conservative federal judge John Michael Ludage Thursday, who made clear that Trump and, quote, his allies and supporters are a clear and present danger to American democracy, end quote. His testimony to the hearing brought out the ongoing nature of the coup, that Trump and his co-conspirators are keeping the big lie of a stolen election alive, not to right a past wrong, but in preparation to challenge and overturn a potential Republican loss in the 2024 presidential election through any means, including brute force. Ludage said, in no uncertain terms, that these perpetrators were in real time right now conspiring to overthrow the U.S. government. The committee also revealed information about Jenny Thomas's role in the insurrection, though it seems there may be more here that they have not gone into, at least not yet. This is dangerous territory for the whole ruling class, and especially, in my opinion, Liz Cheney, 
who supports the actual anti-Black, anti-LGBTQ, anti-women, anti-immigrant policies that Ginny's husband, Clarence Thomas's position on the Supreme Court, helps to ensure. Ginny and her husband are very much of the same mind when it comes to their vision of America. The fact that Ginny Thomas was involved is outrageous in and of itself. And John Eastman, again, Trump's top lawyer at the time and a central coup plotter, was a former clerk for Clarence Thomas, who remained in the Thomas's political circle. Evidence was presented that at least two justices were willing to entertain some form of procedural justification for overturning the election results. Damning evidence was disclosed that Alito had been presented with an quote-unquote emergency application from Trump's legal team, with which he could have either squashed the coup's pseudo-legal front or legitimized their bullshit in real time. But instead, he watched and waited, seemingly so he could play for the whatever was the winning team. All of this is truly abhorrent. But if it were found out that Clarence Thomas was directly involved with plotting the coup, this could create a true constitutional crisis. This concentrates the high-wire act that these hearings are for those putting them on, for the section of the rulers who aim to preserve the status quo and the governing consensus that has held this country together since the Civil War. They must at least attempt to expose and impugn the fascists who would dare to upset that order. But if they go too far in getting to the truth and holding the perpetrators accountable, they risk delegitimizing the institutions at the very center of their vaunted status quo. In the name of moving a unified nation forward, a year and a half later, the chief coup plotters and funders roam free, including members of Congress who voted against certifying the election. Democrats have refused to take any meaningful action to hold these to account, refused to take action to stop the filibuster, and have opposed calls to impeach Clarence Thomas from the Supreme Court, despite his potential instrumental role in the coup. Trump and the Republican Fascist Party are learning from their mistakes and plotting what's next. The hearings are revealing that the coup of January 6, 2021, failed not because of a lack of institutional support from the courts, the military, the Republican Party, and not because of some bulwark opposition from the Democrats. What seems to have saved us was their lack of experience and just enough bad luck on the part of those carrying this out. Mango Mussolini, Trump, spoke the day after this hearing, Friday, at the Road to Majority Policy Conference of the Faith and Freedom Coalition. With his greatest hits pushing the big lie, defending the coup attempt while floating pardons for January 6th defendants if he wins in 2024, of course, denigrating the January 6th Select Committee. But he did something else. He doubled down on attacking Pence for not helping him overturn the election. Note, Pence skipped this conference. He said, quote, Mike Pence had a chance to be great. He had a chance to be frankly historic. But just like Bill Barr and the rest of these weak people, Mike, and I say it sadly because I like him, but Mike did not have the courage to act, end quote. An unpunished coup is a dress rehearsal. Make no mistake, if Trump is allowed to return to power, the vengeance of his fascist movement will be swift and it will be vicious. We cannot use this window of time sitting on our hands. Only the people can stop this. Into the streets 
refuse fascism. With that, here is my interview with Jill Filipovich. It's Thursday, June 16th. This is the first day this week I'm not in front of the Supreme Court. This week. (laughs) Any day now, the Supreme Court in the world's most powerful country stands poised to rip from women their fundamental right to control their bodies, their reproduction, and their destinies. As I've said before, and will continue to say, we can't be bystanders as the state shatters women's lives. To help us deepen our understanding of what's truly at stake with this potential overturning of Roe, how it connects to the broader fascist assault, and most urgently, why our actions matter, I'm honored to speak with Jill Filipovich. Jill is a Brooklyn-based journalist, lawyer, and author of OK Boomer, Let's Talk, How My Generation Got Left Behind, and the H Spot, The Feminist Pursuit of Happiness. She is a weekly columnist for CNN and also a contributing opinion writer for The New York Times. And she has a super lovely substack that I encourage everyone to check out. Welcome, Jill. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yesterday, the New York Times reported on how since the leaked draft decision in the Dobbs versus Jackson women's health case, the clinics have been already begun to operate as if Roe has been overturned. There's bans that have been sweeping the country, each crueler than the last. And we know that if Roe is overturned, abortion will be banned or severely restricted, impacting the lives of about 35 million women, along with others who can become pregnant. We know that despite this reality, Christian fascists tell you that this isn't about taking away abortion rights, but returning the decision to the states. And we get a glimpse of what a post-Roe world would mean by listening to our sisters in countries where abortion is criminalized. The warnings of women of El Salvador who have been imprisoned for miscarriages and stillbirths from the women of Poland who are unable to get cancer treatment because of the risk to a fetus. In an article you wrote for Time Magazine right after the leak, you said, quote, these are the stakes if this draft opinion becomes law, some women's lives, many women's futures, and all of our freedoms, end quote. I was hoping that you could walk us through a bit more of what this means, because I have this strong feeling that people here in this country don't have a full sense of what losing this, this right will mean. Sure. So, you know, I think about this in terms of, kind of multiple levels of harm. If we remove the right of women and other people who can get pregnant to end a pregnancy, there's kind of the immediate and direct harm to people who are pregnant, don't want to be pregnant, need a safe abortion. That is a situation that roughly one in three women worldwide finds herself in at some point in her life. And a huge number of American women will continue to find themselves pregnant when they don't want to be pregnant, wanting to have abortions. And I think the thing to understand is that many of those women will have abortions anyway, regardless of the legal landscape. Some of those women who are kind of on the luckier end of things will still be able to have safe abortions, even though abortion is criminalized in some states. They will order reliable medication online. They will travel to a state or a country where it's legal. Some women, and you know, this is going to disproportionately impact women who are poor, who don't have internet access at home, who are very young, who perhaps have intellectual disabilities. I mean, there's all kinds of groups of very existing vulnerable women who are going to be negative, the worst impacted. For those women, information about how to obtain a safe abortion or money necessary to obtain a safe abortion is going to be out of reach. And some of those women are going to try significantly less safe methods. Some of those women will be badly injured. Some of them may die 
So that's the landscape, sort of the immediate harm landscape we're walking into. There's also some number of women that when they are refused abortion access, will not have abortions and will go on to have children that they had determined they couldn't afford, couldn't adequately support, or for whatever reason, didn't want to have at that time in their lives. And we actually at this point have quite a bit of very good research from something called the Turnaway Study about what happens when women who seek abortions aren't able to get them. And what that study has found happens is that compared to women who are able to end pregnancies, women who were not, who were forced to continue those pregnancies, wound up poorer. Their children had worse outcomes, both in terms of mental health, in terms of how well they do in school, in terms of how physically healthy they are. The women themselves had worse physical outcomes. Some of the women died because pregnancy and childbirth is still a pretty dangerous endeavor in the United States. They were more likely to be dependent on public welfare services, and they were more likely to be trapped in abusive relationships. So you're going to have some number of women who, because they aren't able to access safe and legal abortions, wind up poorer, wind up more vulnerable, wind up abused, and wind up dead. Then you have this kind of broader effect of what does it mean to live in a country that tells women your body isn't yours? So even if you're a person who thinks you would never get an abortion, can't have an abortion, you wouldn't be able to get pregnant in the first place, and so you will not have an abortion, even if you believe that this law does not directly impact you, a country that tells women that we don't have the basic sovereign right to what happens within our own bodies in our most intimate capacities as human beings, the capacity for sexual pleasure, the capacity for reproduction, When the state takes that away from women, it makes all of us second-class citizens. It is state-sponsored misogyny. It is putting us into an explicitly patriarchal framework where the moment a woman gets pregnant or a person gets pregnant, they no longer have the same rights and freedoms as every other citizen in the country. Even if that doesn't impact you directly in terms of abortion access, that absolutely impacts the status of women in society. It's going to impact women in the workplace. It's going to impact women's roles in the family. It's going to impact women's roles in politics. It's going to impact the ability to which women can participate in public and be full members of society in culture, in economics, in political life. And that affects everyone. It affects men, it affects women, it affects everybody who's outside of those two categories. It makes for a worse, darker, less equal society. Thank you for walking us through that. I think that one of the things that we've been talking about a lot on the show is that that sets a standard for women everywhere, whether we like it or not, whether we like the influence that this country has or question it, no matter where you stand, what happens here is going to have an impact for reproductive rights and the status of women across the world, from the ability to be seen to full human beings to the literal imprisonment for seeking out care. Related to that, there's this popular sentiment that we won't go back sentiment. And I strongly unite with that, but I have this strong feeling that it's going to be different, that it won't just be going back to pre-row times. And I was wondering what your thoughts on that are. Yeah, I mean, it, it is different. This is not 1960, but it's different in a couple of different directions, some of which I think really benefit feminists and the abortion rights movement, and some of which create a whole universe of new risks that didn't exist pre-row. So 
The thing that benefits us is that there has been great forward progress in terms of abortion technology, how you can have an abortion. Now, the most common way to have legal abortion around the world is with pills. And I don't want to speak out of turn. I'm not positive about this, but I believe it's either the most common or close to it. Also a way to have a self-managed abortion. Abortion pills are overwhelmingly safe. They don't kill people. <laughs> they, you know, they basically mimic a miscarriage. And so it also creates a universe in which if those pills don't completely work, a person who has used them can go to an emergency room. And it's pretty much impossible to distinguish a pill-induced abortion from a miscarriage. That obviously has created a whole lot of problems in places like you mentioned, El Salvador, also Honduras, the whole slew of countries that have outlawed abortion that have put women in jail for showing up at the hospital having a miscarriage when doctors or nurses suspected that that was an intentional abortion. So the part that we're not going to go back to, to the same extent, is that kind of back alley coat hanger, super dangerous abortions. The most dangerous way to self-induce an abortion is by inserting something into the vagina and through the cervix. It creates the possibility of puncture and then an infection and then sepsis. And that's pretty much how women died pre-Roe and how women, particularly in the world's poorest countries, continue to die from unsafe abortions. The advent of abortion-inducing medication makes self-managed abortions much, much, much safer. So that's good. That's the thing that benefits us. What doesn't benefit us is we now have a much more sophisticated surveillance state that women are going to be making these decisions and researching their decisions in. So one thing I, 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 and I know abortion rights advocates are working on this, but it, you know, is not the kind of most immediate important thing. So it's been a bit on the back burner, you know, is the reality that tech companies control so much of the information that we're able to access. And will women be able to access information about how to self-induce an abortion in places where it's outlawed? If that, for example, doesn't meet the terms of service of Facebook, will Google prioritize in its search engine accurate information about how to self-manage an abortion? Or will we see Google, for example, deferring to whatever a state or kind of local body says is the accurate information? And what if that state is Texas? These are really big questions that we don't know the answer to. So that's kind of the, the internet social media landscape. And then there's the enforcement landscape, which is that pre-Roe, you know, we did not obviously have smartphones. We were not being tracked everywhere we went. Law enforcement was significantly less sophisticated. And we are now operating a universe in which law enforcement is, compared to the general population, pretty conservative, probably much more conservative in the conservative states that are going to ban abortion immediately. And they have a lot more tools at their disposal to figure out where women are going, to figure out what people are searching online. And so I do worry that between the landscape of powerful and unaccountable social media and internet companies having the ability to determine what information women can find, and then also much more sophisticated law enforcement apparatuses able to look at, okay, where did your phone ping from? Do you have a weather app that literally tracks every single place that you go? Because that's how you see what the local weather is. And can they track? Did you go to a place where you possibly obtained an abortion? Did you search for abortion-inducing medications online? You know, these are all questions that we have never had to address before in the U.S. And if the Supreme Court overturns Roe, or even if they substantially gut it, and many of these state laws criminalizing either all abortions or most abortions go into effect, we are going to see a real push to enforce criminal laws against people ending pregnancies. 
And law enforcement is going to be much, much better at that. And I would suspect much, much more aggressive than they were in the pre-Roe era. The abortion surveillance is so scary to me. When you think about it, I started reading The Handmaid's Trail, the report on abortion surveillance after Roe, Surveillance Technology Oversight Project. They did a report on it and it's horrifying. There's things you don't think about as like a regular person that you just search automatically. It's horrifying. I was also thinking about how pre-Roe, the notion of the legal enshrining or codification of fetal personhood wasn't on the table. And therefore the punishing aspect, did people get punished? Absolutely. Before and in states that where it was illegal. But I think that what we're seeing is like a further criminalization. I could be wrong, but that's just something that I think about. And the fact that it's not happening in a landscape absent a whole Christian fascist assault overall, where they're going for a federal abortion ban. They're going for contraception. They're going for sex education. They're going for it all. And it's not like there's this one thing happening in isolation, but if they're able to win this, then they become, they become even more emboldened to go further. It's not like they're like, okay, we got this. We'll back off. Yeah. And that's, that's been very clear. (laughs) You know, the biggest lie is that this case will just toss the question back to the States and that that's what any anti-abortion organization wants. As far as I know, there is not a single anti-abortion organization in the U.S. that supports leaving this question to the states. They will say that they want the Supreme Court to overturn Roe, and then this will go back to the states. But that's step one. Step two is, as you said, a federal abortion ban, which there's already, at least according to reporting from the Washington Post, draft legislation of. So that's on its way. Whether that will pass, whether the Supreme Court would uphold it, these are all separate questions. But the anti-abortion movement is very much pushing for a, a national ban. And then you're right that the way a lot of the state legislation is written is very, very different. I believe some states still have pre-Roe anti-abortion legislation on the books. But what you're seeing, particularly in conservative states, is legislation that is being modeled off of Americans United for Life model legislation work. And a lot of it is based on fetal personhood. It establishes the point of personhood as when sperm meets egg. So before pregnancy, pregnancy is established when a fertilized egg implants in the uterus. That has vast repercussions and has repercussions, obviously, for abortion, but it also has repercussions for things like IVF and other reproductive technologies. It has repercussions for contraception. You know, one thing that we've seen from the Supreme Court is that they are willing to suspend scientific consensus on things like contraception in favor of individual religious belief. That's what we saw in the Hobby Lobby case, where they basically said, this guy who owns a you know non-religious company, secular company, does not have to provide a health insurance plan that covers certain forms of contraception because he believes that those forms of contraception cause abortions. It doesn't matter if those forms of contraception don't cause abortions. What matters is his belief that they do, right? And that is sufficient for him to deny uh, his employees contraception coverage. So we've already seen this court determine that the scientific consensus when it comes to reproduction is less important than an individual's religious belief. So what that means for upcoming laws that could potentially regulate even some of the most popular and effective forms of contraception out of a legal framework, I think is a really open question and a very scary question. You know, and if you poke around the websites of many of the most prominent anti-abortion groups, you know, from everything from 
Students for Life, I think is one of them. There's a few others. They're very, very clear, American Life League. They're very clear that they oppose hormonal contraception, that they oppose certainly the IUD, um, but also birth control pills. And that in their ideal universe, those things would be outlawed. So we're looking at a movement that's quite emboldened, that has succeeded, and frankly has succeeded after three decades of terrorist harassment and murder. And, you know, they've got the wind at their backs. So the idea that they're going to stop if Roe is overturned is one of the more foolish arguments I've ever heard, or that this will somehow settle the abortion question. This is going to make abortion a much more pitched and intense battle than it has ever been in the U.S. And these groups are going to go for more and more and more extreme asks. And I think they're going to get some of them. Why, given all of that, all that you laid out, including back to the beginning where you were talking about what is at stake for the role and status of women here and all around the world, why are people in total uproar? I don't know about you, but like outside, like a circle of people who are like really in it, writing about it, study, you go out and it's not like a stop everything moment. Why? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, when the Supreme Court opinion leaked, I do think there was pretty widespread horror and outrage. There were marches, there were demands for Biden to do something, and he's so far refused to do anything. I think it's a few reasons. I think one, people don't know what to do. I think people feel really stuck. And we're all looking around and saying like, we should do something, but it's unclear what would actually at this point kind of solve this impending disaster. You know, and I I can list a few things I think would help solve this impending disaster, including getting rid of the filibuster. But, But many of the solutions are kind of more structural and less about how do we stop this bad thing from happening right now. I also think the reality of the abortion issue is that a lot of people don't want to think about it. I think it makes people uncomfortable. I think people get kind of weighed down in this foggy sense of like, this is really morally complicated. And so I'd rather just not worry about it. And frankly, I think, you know, a a lot of women don't think about it or worry about it until they really need an abortion. And a lot of women actively oppose abortion rights, (laughs) but are, you know, until they need an abortion and then are willing to avail themselves of abortion access and the access that feminists have been pushing for, for, for decades. So I think all of that, this sense of, we don't actually know how to fix this problem. And then from some other folks, this is a problem I'd rather not think about. And then, you know, of course, the the third part of it, which is the whole chunk of society that actually is a minority, it's not half, but it is a significant minority of American society that is very happy to see women (laughs) constrained to second class status and to see abortion rights taken away. You know, I think you combine those factors, plus kind of post-Trump exhaustion, plus a sense that everything's post-COVID, but still in a pandemic exhaustion, a general sense of impotence. I think has really, really taken hold, but it's frustrating. <laughs> I agree with you. No, it, it definitely is frustrating. I, I agree. Like with all the factors that you're laying out, I also think that even amongst that majority, the pro-choice majority, there's still that not really wanting to fight for women, like so explicitly mm-hmm. um, that it's acceptable not to partially because we are the majority and we're not used to having to. And I think that it has to do with the way that we're trained in in the society, even women, and not fight for women. I wanted to end on a more positive note. Well, there was two articles that you wrote that I just read these parts over and over again, because I thought that they spoke to so much and your feelings about them may have changed in the weeks as we get closer. But you wrote, 
quote, now is the time to speak out and show those in power just how massive an earthquake they will cause if abortion is outlawed. And if you've been passive on this issue, perhaps because you don't think you'll ever need an abortion, now is the time to pay attention and get in the fight. Because when one in four women has an abortion in her lifetime, someone you love will need one. And because we are all worse off in a country that does not allow women to chart our own paths, control our own bodies, and walk toward our best futures, end quote. And then another piece you had written that it was time to raise hell and that this debate is not over. And that what's necessary is that a response so bold and there that it could destroy the the legitimacy, um, these are my words, of the Supreme Court making mistakes clear. And I just was wondering, and what are your thoughts on on what we can do in this moment? Yeah, I mean, I think this is moment is it's tragic, it's perilous, but it also is a catalyst. I, I, I think it's incredibly sad that the Supreme Court is destroying its own legacy. I mean, what a phenomenal institution and what a way it's putting itself up in flames. You know, if, if they do overturn Roe, I, I do think that's going to be, you know, if not the death knell of the institution, something that we will look back on and say, you know, this was a really, really dark moment in this institution's history. There's no upside to the Supreme Court overturning Roe. So I don't want to sound like I'm feeling sunny about this. I'm feeling absolutely enraged and, and devastated by this. You know, that said, it's that like Mr. Rogersism, right? Like look for the helpers. And there are a lot of helpers here. There are a lot of folks in the reproductive justice world already doing the work, already setting up the mechanisms to get safe abortions to as many people as possible. So that is the kind of like most positive frame that I have. And I would just say, you know, to to anybody who's listening, figure out how you can join this fight, whether that is working with directly getting abortion inducing medications to people, whether that is pressing for political change, or whether that's just kind of not shutting up about this, destigmatizing abortion, emphasizing abortion is normal, you know, making yourself part of the cultural shift that we so badly need. To emphasize that abortion is just a normal part of women's lives all over the world. It is a medical procedure. It is a public health issue. It's an economic issue. And that's how it should be treated. Thank you so much, Jill. And for those who want to read more from you, follow you, all that good stuff, where should they go? You can subscribe to my Substack, which is Jill, J-I-L-L dot Substack.com. And I'm on Twitter at, at Jill Filipovich, J-I-L-L-F-I-L-I-P-O-V-I-C. Thanks so much, Jill, Thanks for sharing your perspective and expertise with us. And we'll be reading more from you soon. Thanks. Again, I seriously recommend Jill's Substack. It's got news and analysis on women's rights, politics, law, and global affairs. Go check it out. I want to give a shout out to those who have been out with Rise Up for abortion rights outside the Supreme Court saying overturn Roe. Hell no. It's been an honor to be out with y'all. And I'm going to play a clip of a crew that was outside the Supreme Court calling on you to join them this Tuesday, June 21st at 9am. I'll be there. And I really hope to see you, your family, your friends. Reach out to let me know how you are mobilizing to get people to DC. Tweet me at Sam B. Goldman. Let me know how you're doing it and why you're joining. For more, visit riseupforabortionrights.org. Come to D.C. Get on the bus. Get on the bus. Come to D.C. Come to D.C. It's time to stand up. It's time to stand up.
beautiful. You look beautiful. Make some noise. Yeah. Now, here is Sansara Taylor talking with Dahlia Lipwick. This interview originally aired on the RNL show. She writes on the courts and the law for Slate.com, and she is the host of the podcast, Amicus. I am so happy to welcome back to the RNL, the Revolution Nothing Less show, Dahlia Lithwick. Dahlia, how are you? I'm about as tired as I suspect you are. This has been been the long this month has been the longest year of my life, but it's just gonna get worse. Well, that's what we're gonna talk about. So I want to talk specifically about the ruling we are expecting any day now on a major abortion case that could overturn Roe v. Wade, overturn abortion protections nationwide. And I wonder, as this decision looms ever closer, what's foremost in your mind in terms of the stakes for women's lives, for girls, for future generations, and for justice overall in this country? What is what is looming most for you? I think what's looming most for me is that which is invisible to so many of us who are having this conversation. I think that so many people are like, well, that's okay, because you'll still be able to fly to New York, or because medication abortion is getting ever easier in blue states. So maybe, you know, this isn't going to be that catastrophic or impactful. And I always start with the proposition, and this is something that Professor Catherine Frankie from Columbia Law School said to me on my podcast, not even about Dobbs, but about SB8, the Texas vigilante law that you and I have spoken about, that Roe v. Wade was always a paper right for many, many pregnant people in this country. And that the minute the Hyde Amendment (laughs) precluded abortion funding, the minute after Casey that we had states that were closing and shuttering clinics and getting down to one clinic uh, left in the state. If you were on an Indian reservation in Oklahoma, if you were in certain places in Texas, you always only had a paper right to abortion. And it's just useful to remember that not to say, you know, maybe this isn't that bad, but very much as is the case with voting rights. If you were a person of color, if you were somebody who didn't have a birth certificate, if you lived in New Mexico and didn't have access to, you know, a simple drive-by voting place, this was never a right that that you had or that you could assume. And so in a weird way, I always remember Carol Anderson, Professor Carol Anderson said this on my podcast two years ago about voting. Well, now all Americans get to see what it's like to vote when you are Black in Georgia. And I think in some ways, now all Americans are going to get to see what it's always been like to try to terminate a pregnancy in Oklahoma or in Alabama. And that isn't to say this isn't a big deal, but it's to say, I think, I hope that this surfaces, how hard it's been for so many people for so long. And that while all of us thought, oh, after Roe, everybody could get an abortion, it was simple. It was just a matter of going to the local clinic, that that was never true. And so I just want to point people to, you know, people of color, to very, very young people, to people who have no financial resources, because their lives are going to be immiserated in ways that, you know, we can talk about in terms of access. And I want to point people to physicians who are now going to be chilled and terrified. We're already seeing reporting coming out of Alabama that physicians are turning away people at the ER who are presenting with miscarriages, but miscarriages that look exactly the same as a medication abortion might. So the number of people who are terrified, who are chilled, who are in dire, dire straits and who don't have support systems is going to expand wildly. 
And they may not be visible to absolutely everybody who's listening to us today, but that I think is where we need to focus our attention. You know, this morning, the New York Times did a big story. I don't know if you had a chance to look at it yet, but it was doing uh, zeroed in on Missouri, but I think it's true overall that in a post-Roe world predicting that Roe falls, birth control is the next frontier, the next thing that's being banned, that's being put out of reach. And of course, for anybody who has been really following the rise of this Christian fascist assault on abortion rights, it's been clear they're coming for birth control too. They've always opposed birth control, sex education, all of that, because their program is really to reverse and bring women back into forced motherhood and, and a domestic role that to a degree has been broken down in recent generations. But it is a shock to many people to start to see this. And I wonder if you want to comment on that, as well as the reality of the legal tie between the foundations of Roe v. Wade and the right to birth control and what it means if Roe falls for women's right and access to birth control. So I I think your predicate is exactly correct, that the same doctrinal bucket of protections that gave us Roe and Casey, and that, by the way, give us Obergefell, marriage equality, and give us Lawrence, which strikes down Texas's sodomy law, the same bucket is Griswold, right? It protects birth control and it's Loving versus Virginia. It protects interracial marriage. All of that comes together. Those are called dismissively in Justice Alito's draft opinion. They're just unenumerated rights. It's just this ephemeral, vaporous, substantive due process. You may remember from the Katanji Brown-Jackson hearings, uh, Senator John Cornyn from Texas, Marsha Blackburn, just these rights are meaningless. They're not tethered to anything. They were just made up. Well, if you take away Roe v. Wade, you pull that sort of Jenga piece out and you say, well, Roe and Casey are not protected because, as Justice Alito writes, they are not, quote, deeply rooted in the nation's history and traditions, then none of those other rights we just talked about are either, right? I mean, it is clear that LGBTQ freedom, the right to use birth control within a marriage, that's Griswold, the right to marry someone of a different race, that's loving, all of that goes away too. And so for the court to even try to say, oh, we're pulling out this one Jenga piece, but the rest of the puzzle stands is just completely fatuous. And I would add, this is the same court that's striking down precedent saying, just trust us, we won't strike down the other precedent. And so take that sort of for the paper it's written on. And then I think your larger point is really descriptively correct. I think that it is impossible If you, for instance, thought about Hobby Lobby, the case where the court was saying that birth control is in the minds of some employers, an abortifacient, something that triggers birth control and therefore does not have abortion. So so if you you say that birth control, that Ella, plan B, whatever it is, and the court already kind of conceded that in Hobby Lobby, then how can those quote unquote abortifacients not be next on the chopping block? And so I think you're descriptively correct that the folks who say, oh, no, no, this begins at row and it ends at row, it won't go any further, trust us, are the same people who are going to be pushing for a federal abortion ban, right? I mean, the idea that this is going to be left up to the states, I think is fanciful. And they are some of the same uh, jurisdictions like Oklahoma that are passing laws that say that life begins at conception. And that sweeps in IVF 
it has to sweep in surrogacy. And as you say, it has to sweep in what you and I would think of as medically necessary birth control. And so I think it's, it's very tempting for people who want to be mollified <laughs> to mm. say, okay, if Justice Alito is promising me that they're not coming for LGBTQ rights next, or they're not coming for contraception next, I'm going to take him at his word. But you're exactly right. If you look at this, as Justice Alito clearly does in the Dobbs opinion, as having to do with, quote unquote, unborn human beings, and it's a phrase he repeats over and over again, the states are going to be free to determine what an unborn human being is. And that's already happening in some jurisdictions. And I think it's going to continue to happen. And the idea that we can't imagine it is kind of on us. I have to grab the phrase you use, people who want to be mollified, because I think that sweeps up way too many people right now. Look, the majority of people in this country support the legal right to abortion, overwhelmingly. I mean, some may want restrictions, there's arguments to be had over all of that, but they support the legal right to abortion. And yet, I think what you described, many people want to be mollified. They want to tell themselves a story. This is not going to be that bad. And it's people who, you know, everything from saying it's not going to be that bad because we have the abortion pill to people who are saying they're not that in the weeds on it. They're just thinking, no, we're in America. We're in the U.S. This would never, we would never put women backwards that way. I just wonder if you want to say more about how, why you picked that phrase and how you see it taking expression. I feel like we had this conversation after SBA passed in Texas, you know, a version of this, which is that the world had sorted into people like you and I who saw this as the court fundamentally blessing vigilantism, blessing citizens taking it upon themselves to enforce the law for a bounty, and that there was a real pushback because there was another category of people who were just like, you're overreacting, it's not going to be that bad, you know, it's not that serious. Show me where somebody has been hailed into court and won a $10,000 bounty for aiding and abetting an abortion. And I think that this is in some ways, kind of the magical thinking that goes on sort of alongside the American exceptionalism that says, but we have the best freest democracy in the world. And, you know, Justice Alito says in the Dobbs opinion, if you don't like this, go to the voting booth and fix it. And it's really, really tempting to say, oh, I guess I should just go and vote and fix it. Except this is the same Justice Alito who wrote the Brnovich opinion last year that made it harder to enforce the Voting Rights Act. And this is the same Justice Alito who keeps voting that in ways that permit vote suppression in states that want to suppress the vote. And so I just think we have to be really mindful. And by the way, I will say, because the same thing is happening in the gun context, you know, in the in the same next two weeks, the court's not just going to hand down Dobbs, it's going to hand down Bruin, a case that allows people to, you know, concealed carry in the New York City subways. And it's going to hand down cases that allow for meaningful erosion of the wall between church and state and public schools and eviscerate the EPA's power to regulate environmental harm. All that's going to happen. And I think there's going to be a tendency by people, as we say, who want to be mollified to say, well, this is a thing where I'm shocked because I don't understand because 60, 70, 80% of the population wants meaningful gun control, doesn't want row overturned, supports the idea of uh, meaningful environmental regulation. How is this happening? And I think that all of those shocks, and they are experienced as shocks, might help us understand 
that this isn't an abortion problem. It's not a gun problem. It's not federal agencies are being systematically dismantled by this court. Those all are part of a democracy problem. Mm. And those are the things that we're going to have to think about, that it's just not as simple as, I guess, if I just show up and vote in my highly gerrymandered district where there's only one person that can possibly run for office, that the voting is not necessarily the solution. It can be the solution, but only if we work on malapportioned Senate, you know, the Electoral College, the Electoral Count Act, the filibuster, all of those boring democracy levers that mm. mean that maybe it's not the best freest constitutional democracy in the world. The leaked draft from Samuel Alito. I was very struck. You did a piece where you talked about the title was the horrifying implications of Alito's most alarming footnote. And I read this and I thought, you know, you begin with early on, you talk about what Amy Coney Barrett said about what's the problem with forcing women to have children against their will. It's not going to be a burden on their life. They can just drop the baby off. We have safe haven laws. And which to me, when I heard that, the cruelty, the barbarity towards women was so apparent. It was just it felt like you're being punched to, to even hear it. And you talk about that in your piece. And I think it'd be good if you spoke about it a little bit now, too. But then you pull and connect it, which in this country is patriarchy, misogyny, tradition, religion is always going to be connected with white supremacy. But you draw this together in a legal way that was not at all apparent to me when I first heard that. And I think it's, I think it'd be really helpful for you to bring that alive for our listeners and our viewers. So I want to give credit where it's due here, which is to Peggy Cooper Davis, who is a professor at NYU, who did a lot of this legal research in the 1980s, and we didn't see what she was saying. Mm -hmm. And I actually became aware, even before the Dobbs opinion, going back to the Katanji Brown-Jackson hearings, that when Senator Cornyn was saying, what is this unenumerated rights that you're talking about? What is this substantive due process? It is tethered to nothing. It has no constitutional force. I went back and started reading and David Gans at the Constitutional Accountability Center has done a bunch of work on this that I commend to people. I went back and started to read what was this thing that they were trying to guarantee in the 14th Amendment when they talked about about the liberty interests that were not protected in the Bill of Rights. Something had to be added to make formerly enslaved people free. And what was that thing that was baked into the 14th Amendment? And when you look at Peggy Cooper Davis's research, when you look at David Gans's research, what is clear is that if you were a product of chattel slavery, the freedom you didn't have wasn't just, you know, First Amendment speech rights and religion rights. It was the right to marry who you wanted to marry, to keep and have your own children, to have your children not be ripped away and traded like they were slaves and chattel themselves. The ability to say within our marriage, we will have the number of children we want and we will raise them as we see fit. And ironically, and this is just a footnote, the same people who are now saying, I hate critical race theory, I don't want to send my kid to a school where they are being taught about sex education are citing those exact values, right? Those are precisely the values of family autonomy, family integrity, bodily integrity, the right to direct and control your upbringing of your children. Those are the values they're citing. Well, guess where those come from? Those do not derive from the rest of the constitution. They derive 
from the values that the drafters of the 14th Amendment were trying to give freed slaves and to say, no one will ever again rape your wife. No one will ever again put your spouse on a cart to be sold to someone else. And the reason I'm feeling so passionate about it is that if you look at that text in history, if you look at the purpose of why we have unenumerated rights to family, privacy, and autonomy. It is the most compelling moral and ethical story about bodily freedom that I have ever heard. Mm. And the fact that it is just evaporated, as you say, it's not in the discourse. Nobody said to John Cornyn on the Dem side, here is why we have unenumerated rights. Here is why substantive due process protects your right to marry the person that you love and to raise children. And it is the most compelling compelling story about a country that is recovering from the sin of slavery that has ever been told. And so the reason Justice Alito sort of really set me off is there's language in the Dobbs opinion where he's citing, you know, the domestic supply of babies that are up for adoption that really cannot be heard without chiming in your ears some of the sort of language that you started the question with about the appalling subjugation of both women and slaves that was supposed to be corrected by the 14th Amendment, the notion of substantive due process and an unenumerated right. Just one more question on this unenumerated rights, because as I understand it, and probably for a lot of people listening, this is a lot of what Alito and the originalists are going after. The Constitution should be interpreted as it was written in its text, not these unenumerated rights that weren't spelled out. And so if it's not in the written constitution, oh, abortion, it's not there. Privacy is not there. All of these things. But you're citing in the 14th Amendment, one of the amendments as part of abolishing and enshrining rights for formerly enslaved people. This is where the whole concept of those unenumerated rights, including the right to family, the right to privacy came from. And this is what's being called into question in the logic of this footnote. Am I understanding that correctly? That's exactly right. And that is the sort of party trick that we heard John Cornyn performing at Justice Jackson's hearings. And, you know, the exact language that Justice Alito uses in his Dobbs draft is that the only liberty interests that are protected under the 14th Amendment substantive due process clause are the liberties that are, quote, deeply rooted in the nation's history and traditions. And that is a perfect circle, as you say, because he's like, well, I just there's no right to abortion in the Constitution. And then he says there are these unenumerated rights. There are these substantive liberty uh, interests. But they also have to be the ones that are completely privileged from the time of the drafting. And it's completely circular if you are looking at documents that inherently preserve the rights of white landowning males over everyone else. And so I guess just to circle back to your very first question, if you're using the test that Justice Alito uses, which is the only substantive due process or unenumerated rights that are going to be protected by the court are deeply rooted in the nation's history and traditions, then I probably wouldn't take him at his word that marriage equality, LGBTQ rights, the right to contraception, or the right to marry someone of a different race are not on the table because none of those are liberty interests that go back to a long tradition of freedom and liberty under the Constitution. Well, Dahlia, I I really want to thank you for making the time to talk. I really enjoyed it. And I'm sure people are going to learn a lot from it. So thank you. Of course. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Refuse Fascism. I want to hear from you, share your thoughts, questions, ideas for topics or guests, or lend a skill. 
tweet me at Sam B. Goldman, or you can drop me a line at Samantha Goldman at refusefascism.org, or leave a voicemail by visiting anchor.fm forward slash refuse dash fascism and hitting the message button there. Want to support the show? Awesome! It's simple. Show us some love by rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts. Go into it now or your listening platform of choice. And of course, follow, subscribe, so you never miss an episode. Chip in to support our pod and content creation to help people understand and act to stop the fascist threat. You can donate by visiting refusefascism.org and hitting the donate button. Thanks to Richie Marini, Lena Thorne, Coco Das, Deborah Sweet, and Mark Tinkleman for helping produce this episode. Thanks to incredible volunteers, we have transcripts available for each episode, so be sure to visit refusefascism.org and sign up to get them in your inbox each week. We'll be back next Sunday. Until then, in the name of humanity, we refuse to accept a fascist America.